All right, so I'm just going to do a quick high-level overview where we've been because we're, we're making a pivot in the class. So we've talked about the origin of sin, the spread of sin, the nature of sin. Now we're pivoting into some focus on unique active sins, so sins that we still struggle with uh, even after being um, yeah, born again and uh, saved uh, in the gospel. And so, yeah, we talked about week one, the origin of sin, that the fall of Adam is a real event in history where man first rebelled against God, and it's the root. So that, that sin is the root to which every human misery and sin can be traced. Sin separated us from perfect fellowship with God and brought death. It brought spiritual slavery, and then it brought destruction into the fabric of all things. Then the spread of sin, so the result of this first sin, ultimately we talk about as original sin, that in every human from Adam has inherited a corrupt, sinful nature, guilty before God from birth. As our covenant had, Adam's guilt and the effects of sin were imputed to each of us, resulting in having total depravity and inability to become right with God in our own power or strength. And if you, didn't, if you weren't here for Lyle's class, it was, it was wonderful, even just as he talked about the imputation of guilt from Adam, but then how God used that to ultimately foreshadow the imputation of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. It was, yeah, wonderfully edifying. So thank you, brother. And then last week we talked about the nature of sin, is that we ultimately love self, someone, or something over God who is most glorious. And Dave helped us look at the holiness of God as the standard by which we then see really how heinous our sin is before him. So we looked at Isaiah 6 uh, and Isaiah's confrontation with God's holiness, that he is holy, 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 and what what our sin is in result of that. Um, So thankfully, though sin is not the end of the story, and sin does not have the final say, though God could have left us in the mess of destruction caused by sin, he has graciously and definitively worked his eternal plan of salvation so that lost, depraved sinners might be reconciled to to him, forgiven of their sin, and now enjoy fellowship with him, enjoy his love, both now and ultimately forever when the Lord Jesus returns. So we're going to just quickly just highlight kind of the arc of salvation to better root us in, okay, God saves sinners, and until he comes home, what does this process of sanctification look like? Because each of us know that we still struggle with sin every day. So what are these sins that we struggle with? Why do we struggle with that? And so let's just root where we are in the arc of salvation to better kind of understand Um, even looking at specifically at anger. So sin brought death. It brought separation from God. So we were were dead in our trespasses and sins, as, as, as Ephesians 2 talks about. There's nothing that we could do to become right with God, to atone for our sin, but the Lord intervened. The Lord, ever since the garden, right after Adam and Eve sinned, he foreshadowed the coming of Christ who would crush the serpent's head. And so dead sinners are born again into a living hope through Christ's life, his death, and his glorious resurrection. And when the Spirit of God enables a sinner to turn to Jesus, to repent and believe in the gospel, what happens is propitiation, expiation, and justification. So when God saves a sinner and enables them to turn to Christ, Propitiation, God's anger is satisfied in Christ. So the anger that we deserved, 
that the punishment for sin that we rightly deserve before God, that anger was poured out on Christ. It was satisfied in Christ. It was propitiated, expiated, that the removal of guilt, not only has the anger of God been satisfied, but now the guilt that we had for our sin has been removed in Christ. That we no longer stand guilty before God, but we stand righteous before him. We are justified. That we are counted as righteous. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we stand justified before him, not because of anything that we've done, but solely because of what Christ did on our behalf. And God did that out of love for us. That he loved us so much. He he didn't need to save us. He didn't didn't have to do that, but out of love, he willingly saved us by pouring out his wrath on Jesus, raising him to new life, and now bringing us to new life in him. So once a person is saved, they are in Christ fully, their their salvation is secure because it was done fully by Christ. Now until the Lord takes us home or he returns, and let's pray he returns uh, even during this class, uh, he, he is sanctifying us. He is conforming us to the image of his son. If you look at Romans 8, he predestined to adopt us and conform us. So the aim of salvation isn't just washing away of sins. It's actually being conformed into the image of Christ. We are hidden in Christ, in God. So he, day by day, as we behold his glory, as we look to Jesus by the power of the Spirit, he is making us more like Christ, which is ultimately sanctification. And sanctification is done by the power of the Spirit and the power through the power of His Word. And He will sanctify us day by day by His grace until the Lord returns in glorification. And in that state, we will have an inability to sin. Right now, we struggle with sin. As we, in this process of sanctification, it is a daily turning to the Lord, pleading with Him to strengthen us, to resist sin, and pursue righteousness for his glory. But one day, we will have an inability to sin because we will be with the Lord. We will see him face to face, and we will enjoy him forever. And that day is coming, and Lord willing, it comes soon. So we root ourselves right now. We are in, for those in Christ, um, we are in the process of sanctification, where we are putting off the old self. So just in the essence of time, later today, read Romans 6. So spend some time reading Romans 6 and meditate on the fact of what Paul is saying, that our old self was crucified so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. We have been set free from the power of sin, and now we are free to obey, by the power of, uh, by the, power of the Spirit, free to obey Him. Um, verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are to put to death, to count ourselves um, as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ until he returns and, and brings us to himself. We are in that already, not yet, where we are counted as righteous, yet there is still indwelling sin in our flesh rears its ugly head each and every day, and the enemy is still able to tempt us towards sin. But in that future state, glorification, the enemy will not, he will be crushed fully and finally. And our flesh uh, and our, our nature will be 
um, yeah, put to death fully and finally, and so we will never be able to sin in that future state. So active sin, though we've been born again through the power of the Spirit and have been given a new nature and a right standing before God, our sin and our flesh still wage war against us. And so day by day as believers, we are called to yeah, put on and keep in step with the Spirit, to look to Him for help and in His power resist sin and pursue righteousness. So that is the arc of uh, salvation, what God is doing in history to save sinners and conform them to the image of Christ. These next two weeks, we're going to look at, this week we're going to look at anger. So what is the sin of anger? Um, And then next week, we're going to look at uh, the sin of coveting. Uh, I can't remember what we're doing week six. So if anybody knows what we're doing week six, feel free to (laughs) share it now. But we're going to look at these next two weeks at anger and then coveting. Before we get into anger, any initial thoughts or questions? Or Lyle, clarifications from your class? Very helpful. Um, so, as you have the keywords here, propitiation, expiation, justification. So, one that I always find challenging is like expiation and justification. There's talking, there's kind of two sides of the same coin. We're justified to God. Yeah, I think there's, it's a good question. So how are expiation and justification related? Um, So if propitiation is the anger of God being satisfied rightly for for sin, expiation, so we are guilty before God. Christ takes takes the anger of God on our behalf. He He removes our guilt because he satisfied the punishment for the wages of sin is death. So he satisfied that punishment. And as a result of those two things, we can stand righteous. We are now counted as righteous before God. So they're, they're similar in that it's the process of bringing us to new life in him. Um, but I think there's, there is a distinction, and I think they work together, if that makes sense. Great. All right, well, let's look at anger. Um, so I'm going to give a definition, um, of, and then we're going to unpack that definition throughout the class. And... I can't take credit for this definition. David Paulison, if he, um, he's a biblical, I think he was a biblical, I don't know if he's still alive. He's passed. He was a very faithful biblical counselor. He wrote three articles on anger, um, much of which is <laughs> uh, in this lesson. So credit, uh, credit where credit is due. If you would like those articles, I'm happy to send you. They were wonderfully edifying and really, yeah, I mean, they were <laughs> exposing in my own heart, but wonderfully pointed us to the grace of God in Christ. So, what is anger? So, anger is not a neutral emotion or state of being. The world might say, oh, anger is just this, this thing in you that needs to be quenched, or this thing in you that, that's not really a part of you, it just comes out. Well, it's not actually, it's not a neutral em- emotion or something that is just in you or outside of you. It is either, anger is either sinful or righteous before God. It is a, it's a moral emotion, meaning that Um, it's moral in the sense of the emotion can either be righteous or sinful. So anger is an emotion. It is a, uh, it is a heart, body, soul thing, um, that is either results in glory to God or sin before God. And specifically what it is, is ultimately anger is a judgment. So it is you or I or God making a judgment on a perceived wrong or threat. So it's a judgment. So we're in a situation. 
somebody wrongs us, we perceive that situation or that thing that someone did as wrong to us, um, depending on our judgment of that situation and how we respond, it's either sinful how we respond or it's righteous in how we respond. I think this will make sense as we unpack it. So we're just going to start with that definition and then we're going we're gonna to uh, look to unpack it with scripture. But I think it's first important um, to look at anger in terms of the anger of God first and then the anger of man. Because I think when I initially think of anger, I just, I think of it as being bad. It's like, ah, anger is just bad. But actually anger can be good and it can be right because God himself gets angry. <laughs> so if God himself gets angry, it cannot be all bad. It cannot be all wrong. Um, and his anger in light of the gospel is actually good news, as we just talked about, that, that the anger of God was poured out on Christ so that we might be made righteous. And the fact that God is angry means that God is not indifferent to sin, evil, and suffering in the world. If he saw a wrong and he, per, he judged that perceived wrong and then just had no emotion to it or no reaction or action to that, then he would just look at sin, suffering, and evil, and he would just let it run rampant. And if he didn't actually have anger towards it, he wouldn't be fully good or holy. His anger is a sign of his utter holiness, that he is so set apart, that he is so perfect, that he is so righteous, that he cannot look at evil and sin and not do anything about it. He has to be angry against sin and destruction. So if God wasn't angry at sin, he wouldn't be completely holy or completely good. But because he is a just, jealous, and intimately involved God, he looks at sin, evil, and suffering, and is angry towards it, and moves towards it in a way that brings about his glory, and actually does good even to the sinner who's doing that particular evil in that moment, either in justly punishing that person or in giving them grace through Jesus. So God is good in his anger. And I think what I want to, I want to clarify the definition because the definition I gave you of perceived wrong, that is from our standpoint. But anger from God's standpoint is always objective. It's not perceived. God's anger is always objective. He's the author of all things and he is the lawgiver. He is the judge who knows the secrets of the heart, all of our intentions. He knows exactly what's going on in that moment. And so when he makes a judgment on sin or on suffering or on evil in the world, it's always done perfectly. It's always done with a perfect objective view of what is going on in that situation. And then it's always righteous. His anger always produces, is, is always righteous in its, um, uh, yeah, how it flows from him. So when his anger falls on the guilty and the unrighteous in wrath, he is just. No, think of the story of Noah. He is just in flooding the whole earth because man's intentions of the heart were only evil all the time. He is just in judging sinners. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. When Jesus was consumed with anger in the temple, seeing gross injustice and the use of his house for economic ends, he was good, he was righteous in flipping over the tables and exposing the sin of the people. Exposing the sin of the people through his anger was good and ultimately gave them and us an opportunity to repent. So Jesus' anger in that moment 
was perfectly good and did good to the sinners in that moment and by God's grace through the preservation of his word, when we read that now, we are helped as well. So God, God's anger is always objective and it's always good. Which is unlike man's anger most of the time. So as image bearers, anger is one of the communicable attributes, the ways in which we can image God um, that we can reflect. Though I'd say most often, at least in my own heart, we reflect it imperfectly (laughs) Uh, and probably severely imperfectly. As we said, anger is not inherently bad because if God is angry, then there is a way for you and I to be angry and not sin. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. That implies that you can be angry and not sin. Otherwise, it would just say, repent of your anger all the time. (laughs) But be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So thus for the Christian, by God's grace, we can have anger that is not sinful, but in some way reflects the right and just anger of God. We can look at a situation where sin, suffering, and injustice exist, be angry at the result of that, that it is an affront against God, that it is an affront against one of his image bearers, and move forward in such a way that displays his righteousness. Primarily in means of moving forward in the power of the Spirit, him producing the fruit of the Spirit in us. So if I, um, we'll get to this, but we can unpack it a little bit now. When, when my son Jones blatantly disobeys me, that wrong is disobedience against me, which is ultimately a a greater picture of his disobedience towards God's authority and God's rule and reign in his life. It is right, and my perceived judgment on that is right, that I would be angry that he is sinning before God and sinning before, like he's, he's not loving me as himself, but ultimately he's sinning before God. So there is a way in which I can move towards him in anger to discipline him in the fruit of the Spirit, with loving, patience, kindness, that helps him see God's glory, helps him see the heinousness of his sin, but the glory of the gospel in Jesus. So there's a way in which I can rightly respond to that situation in a way that that pleases God. There is often a way, more so in my heart, where I respond to Jones in that moment, actually in sinful anger, where I'm actually more... (laughs) more mad that he is causing me um, discomfort or he is ruining my plans for the day and I respond to him in anger. I I will yell at him or I will spank him out of, uh, (laughs) yeah, spank him out of anger in a way that does not actually take the time to sit with him, to help him see his sin, to point him to Jesus, to ask for the spirit, to produce in me patience in that moment, that which I definitely cannot produce in myself. So, in our anger, we can either, yeah, righteously obey God and it glorifies God and produces good towards that other person, just like if I respond towards Jones in a way that actually helps him see God more clearly, that is good. Or I can heap up anger (laughs) and in strife actually cause more strife, as Proverbs says. Um. So, yeah, just to clarify, so our anger is different from God's in that our anger stems from perceived wrong rather than objective wrong. We are not perfect in our thoughts, in our emotions. We are still tainted by sinful flesh. 
Uh, We are tempted by the enemy. We're not all-knowing. And don't always submit to God's word and submit to the spirit as our lamp and our guide in each and every moment that we encounter a situation of wrong. So sinful anger would be anything that results from elevating self, someone or something, over love for God and neighbor. So in a situation where we, there is wrong, where there's sin, suffering, or injustice, sinful anger results from a place where we are elevating ourselves over loving God or loving neighbor. Um, and there, there's outward fruit that is visible <laughs> from anger, and then there's inward fruit that only... the Lord knows and uh, you know as the Spirit convicts you. So outward fruit would be violence, irritability, impatience, unkindness, gossip, slander, ultimately murder in some cases. Or as Jesus would say, anytime you're angry, (laughs) calling a, a brother a fool. Then there's inward fruit of that anger, that sinful anger, bitterness. I can be bitter with someone and they they would probably know it, but there's a, there's a sense in which I can be really bitter with someone and just put on a face towards them. And I'm living in singer ang- sinful anger towards them. I can be grumbling and discontent in my heart towards God at the situation. Why aren't you doing... You're supposed to, you're supposed to do this for me. I thought you were going to work in this way. Why aren't you doing that? And I can be grumbling and discontent in my heart before God. I can be passive. I can be... Look at a situation, be angry at it, and just dissolve myself from it. Just avoid it, be passive, not enter into it in a way that would actually help that person or people in that moment see what God is doing in that moment in a way that could promote his glory and their good. David uh, Paulson says it this way, he says, much anger arises from perceptions distorted by the beliefs, cravings, and expectations that substitute God's rule in our hearts. But where false beliefs and cravings rule, our perceptions stay twisted. We get stuck in hurt and anger. So when our perceptions of that wrong are distorted by our love for self over love for God, our love for self over love for neighbor, that is when we are going to be prone to responding to that anger in sin rather than righteousness. But as we said, because God is only good in his anger and we are his image bearers, by his grace we can actually respond in righteous anger. And this is anger that flows out of, sub- out of a submission to God's word, empowered by the Spirit with an aim to love God and love neighbor. So in a situation of wrong, there is a way that by God's grace, when we are submitted to God's word, when, we're, when his word is a lamp into our feet, when we're viewing that situation from his word, which is objective, and we're asking the Spirit for wisdom and help in that moment to see things as He sees, and He helps us move forward uh, with the fruit of the Spirit, we can respond righteously, even just as we talked about um, with the situation of myself and my son Jones. But I think there's some elements, uh, again, that that we want to think about when we think about (laughs) whether or not we actually have righteous anger. And we're going to talk about diagnosing anger later in the class, but one, it's done in a posture of humility in the gospel, in any situation, the truth is, is everybody is dead in their sin. Some have been raised to new life in Christ. Others still have not yet been raised to new life in Christ. So no one is righteous. No, not one. None of us deserve God's grace, but God freely gave it. So any situation, we're all on the same playing field. And so there's no, there's no option for elevating ourselves over that per- person or elevating ourselves over God. So done in a posture of humility in, in the gospel, that, that God has to take the plank out of our own eye to see 
uh, to see clearly. Secondly, it would be submitted to the word of God through prayer, uh, that God is the only one who objectively knows the situation, and so we need his word to guide us in all truth in that moment, to make a right judgment on that wrong, uh, and then empowered in the spirit. Um, Responding in anger righteously will never discount the fruit of the spirit, if that makes sense. You cannot respond righteously in anger without embodying the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot be angry and not loving. You cannot be righteously angry and not patient. You cannot be righteously angry and not peaceable. Those, those are, <laughs> they're not on the same playing field. They always go together. Righteous anger always is empowered by the, by the Spirit. And then lastly, aim to give God glory and love neighbor uh, as ourself. Uh, and pointing them to Christ. And so the aim in any situation of wrong where we are making a judgment on that and then responding to that judgment, our aim is to give God glory and to love love neighbor. There we go. Thank you. I love watching discs just jam away. But Okay, so I want to talk about just the law of love. That, uh, that we are to, to love God uh, above all else and then love neighbor as ourselves. Ultimately, love is the, the center point of our, of our call as, uh, as people, but as, 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 as believers especially. And so anger, when we see a situation of wrong, being sin, suffering, and injustice, When we are loving, so let's, let's just say, so, and then let's just, we'll, we'll call it categories. So, I'll get this written down, hold on. So, relationships, money or wealth, health, comfort, status, praise of man the list the list goes on and on but when we encounter a situation of sin suffering and injustice if we in that moment elevate our relationships or the pursuit of money or wealth or health or comfort or status or the praise of man over the love of god over the love of neighbor that is, where, that is where sinful anger flows out of. Um, but when we encounter that situation and God's love <laughs> is primary and he's enabling us to love our neighbor as ourselves, we can respond to those categories in a way that actually does, does please him. And so we're going we're gonna to look at uh, a few examples of this in just a moment, but I, I think it's helpful to think of, okay, and we'll get to this later, but if I'm at work and my colleague gets a promotion over me that I thought I was more qualified for, that's the situation. My perceived wrong or the wrong that I'm perceiving is that I deserve that promotion more than my colleague. If I am loving the praise of man and the pursuit of wealth and comfort over 
the love of God that has satisfied me fully, that he will never leave me nor forsake me, that he always gives me exactly what I need, that clearly that job was not the right promotion that I needed in that moment. And I'm bitter towards my colleague. (laughs) Um, I will respond in sinful anger. I will be bitter towards my colleague. I will be angry with God that he didn't give me what I thought I deserved. But if those are subservient to the love of God and subservient to the love of neighbor, then I can respond in that moment and actually give praise to God that he gave me exactly what I needed in that moment, that he always provides, that I have a job in the first place and he's using that to to provide for, for my family. And I can congratulate my colleague. I can, in humility, help them do well in that new role. And I cannot slack off in my work, but I can actually do work all the more for the glory of God and the good of my, my boss and my company and my colleagues. And so whenever <laughs> these categories are threatened in that moment and we perceive that as being threatened, that's the decision point of whether we're going to love God and love neighbor or we're going to elevate those things over love of God and love of neighbor and let, let sinful anger take over. Um, let's just go to James. I think James 4 highlights this. So let's go to James 4 quick. We got to move. Sorry. So I'm just going to read it. James 4, 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no surprise that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? To even see it, this, this, these situations when we are desiring or coveting or craving something that either God hasn't given us or a neighbor or someone else hasn't given us or something hasn't happened to us. That is the source of when we are elevating those things over God, over neighbor, that is the source of then quarrels, fights, anger, bitterness, malice, resentment towards one another. Does that, does that make sense? Let's walk through a few examples and I think it'll become more clear. It took me like 10 hours of study to figure all this out. So hopefully I've digested it. But let's look at scriptural examples of anger. And there are a ton. But what we're going to do is we're going to, for the sake of time, we're not going to read each passage. We might read the uh, Exodus or Numbers 14 passage. But we're going to look at the situation, what's happening in scripture. What is that person's perception of the perce- of, of, or judgment of the perceived wrong? What's the result from that? And then what does that reveal about their love of God and love of neighbor? And so we're going to look at multiple examples of that. So Cain and Abel, right after the fall, it doesn't take long for uh, anger to rear its full and ugly head in in murder. So the situation is Abel offers the first fruits of his portion before the Lord as a delightful, ultimately grace-empowered offering to the Lord. And Cain brings his brings to the Lord an offering, not the first fruits. And ultimately we see it's out of a legalistic duty, expecting something from God in return rather than just giving it to God because it's God's anyway. And it's an act of, it should be an act of worship. 
So in that moment, what is Cain's judgment of the perceived wrong? God even warns it. Why are you angry? <laughs> he, gives him a, he, he confronts him in his sin, yet Cain still eventually murders his brother. So his judgment of the perceived wrong is that God is giving more favor to Abel than him. So Cain looks at the situation, sees the favor that God has given Abel, and he's, he's angry at God for that. How could God give Abel more favor than me? How could he not give me what I expected in giving him uh, the sacrifice? God should have given me, Cain, favor over my brother Abel. So that's his perception of the situation, that God was unjust, <laughs> that God was unfair, that God was not loving in accepting Abel's uh, sacrifice over Cain's. The result of that is a jealousness, a covetousness that ultimately leads to murdering his brother. Instead of learning from Abel, instead of seeing Abel's right worship of God and following an example and praising God for his brother's example, he destroyed him. So in that moment, (laughs) Cain should have seen the situation and seen his own wrong in the situation, seen that he did not he was not actually worshiping the Lord rightly, but his brother was, and it should have responded in humility, repentance, and following his brother's example, and instead it resulted in jealousness, coveting what Abel had, and ultimately murdering him. So ultimately, we see that Cain elevated his pride and his expectation from God over loving God for who he is. He expected something in return from God for his sacrifice, for his offering. Um, and that was more important than him actually loving God. Cain elevated his own gain as more important than rejoicing in Abel's example of faithful obedience before the Lord. Any thoughts of how anger plays itself out in the story of Cain and Abel? And we're just doing light touches of these. I'd encourage us all for further study and and meditation because we've got a few more examples. But any initial thoughts? Jason. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the heart posture was distorted from the beginning in the, in, the, in the offering. Like, it wasn't done out of worship to God. It was done out of uh, either earning God's favor or ex- expectation of receiving from God rather than actually worshiping God. And that heart posture ultimately led, even when the Lord confronted him, why are you angry? Do you have the right to be angry? He just disregards that because his view of God is wrong in that situation. Uh, and then that gives birth to more sin, ultimately leading to murder. So, because there was a lack of repentance, even when the Lord confronts him. Initially, God tries to correct them. The whole time, he's just 
inflated new Excel, or whatever. Yeah, that's good. So, we, I was discussing this with a friend recently, and her question, she didn't know this right before, her question was essentially, why don't they tell us why, um, yeah, why God accepted fables and not him explicitly? And something that I kind of was talking about, well, first of all, the heart posture behind the worship, like, did he get the first fruits, or did he kind of, yeah, you could, you could make that argument. But do you think that also part of it is to be more general and more applicable to us, to just see that we are more inclined to trust our own judgment of a situation, our own perception, versus God, if we don't think we know why. Like, it's almost from Cain's point of view that he's seeing God took Abel's, God didn't take mine. I may understand, I may not, I may not have been convicted, like, but because I'm, yeah, it's not, like, explicitly clear, does that help us see that we trust himself more than God? Yeah, it's a, that's a great thought and observation. I think it's both and. I think we do see first fruits for Abel's sacrifice. We don't see that. And we know, even just contextually, the Lord commanded the first fruits. Um, and so there's, there's a obedience even in that and a heart posture that we can deduce just from the rest of Scripture. But I think you're right. I think in those moments when we're, even when we're confronted in our sin, our tendency is to, be, to self-justify ourselves. No, I was right in that. Rather than God's objective viewing of that situation. Dan? Do you think part of the perception that Abel, sorry, Cain, was bringing into this was just in the previous chapter, God kind of cursed the ground, and now Cain is the one working the ground here uh, and offering the fruits of the ground rather than Abel, who's, who's tending the sheep. Do you think there could be a perception that Cain's like, well, I'm like doing the harder job here yeah, I don't know if we could necessarily infer that, but I think speaking from my own experience, in a situation when I'm comparing myself to others, I'm more naturally just going to assume I've done a better job <laughs> or I deserve more than that person in that moment. So I think generally speaking, that's, that's true of all of us. Yeah. Let's go on to the next, next example. Uh, we're not going to read it just because of time. Uh, but the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, as they're about to enter the promised land in Numbers 14. So Israel's about to enter the promised land, send some spies into the land to scope out next steps. Soldiers return in fear as they perceived the enemy was too powerful for them and that God would not give them victory in taking over the land. Their perceived wrong in that moment was that God was going to, and they say this, God was going to let them die in the wilderness at the hands of their enemies who were more who were seemingly more powerful than them and ultimately inferring that they were more powerful than God. They were accusing God that he would not keep his promise to them, that he would give them the promised land, despite him just rescuing them from Egypt miraculously and displaying his power time and time again. And so, yeah, they were ultimately, it resulted in grumbling and complaining before Moses and Aaron, which is ultimately grumbling and complaining before God that God was not going to, he was not going to keep his promise. Why would he rescue them just to let them die in the wilderness? Ultimately, what they were doing is they loved their comfort and security that they had in Egypt <laughs> over faith and trust in God and his promises. So they, they, they perceived the, the enemy was more powerful than God, 
that God was not actually going to keep his promise, that he was not powerful enough to defeat the enemy and lead them into the promised land. And they wanted to to stay in their comfort, stay in their security, not enter out in faith, not obey, not trust God that he would deliver them as he has time time and time again. So they were trusting in their own wisdom. (laughs) They were loving their own wisdom, their own perception of the situation, their own strength, which they perceived as weaker than the enemies rather than loving God and who he is, that he is all-powerful, that as he just delivered them, that he would keep his promise and lead them into the, into the promised land. So we, this is an example of grumbling and complaining. Jonah, so read the whole three chapters of Jonah. We see that God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people of, of coming judgment for their sin. So he says, go to Nineveh, preach the coming judgment. Jonah's perceived wrong, or judgment of the perceived wrong, was how could God give mercy to such a wicked people? How could God give mercy to the Ninevites? Like, he, he, he couldn't do that. That would not be right or good of him to do that. How could he show them grace? Well, even in that, well, we see that his anger resulted in just blatant disobedience and avoidance. He goes the other way. Um, and he complains, but he goes the other way. We see that Jonah thought he deserved God's mercy and grace because of his own perceived righteousness as being greater than the Ninevites. So ultimately, he had a sinful pride before the Lord that thought he was deserving of God's love towards him over the Ninevites. He didn't recognize his own needs for, need for God's grace. He didn't recognize his own need for God's mercy. And so he didn't love God rightly because he was coming to God with this performance, <laughs> this works-based righteousness mentality, as well as he did not love his neighbor. He did not see the Ninevites in their sin. They don't know their right hand from their left, as God says. And he was not moved towards them in compassion. What did Jesus do when he saw the crowds who were harassed and helpless? He had compassion on them and he moved towards them like a good shepherd would towards his lost sheep who are running away. So Jonah lacked a right understanding of God's love towards him. He lacked love for the Ninevites and wanting them see, to see them to come to repentance. That result was disobedience, avoidance, um, and, and running from God. But we also see God's immense grace in this passage that, that God would even send the fish to swallow him up and preserve him in that miraculous way for three days, to cause him to come to a right understanding, even as you see in his prayer of the situation of his, of his own sin in that. Um, God preserving him, sending him back, seeing God's grace towards the Ninevites and how they responded in repentance. Uh, and then the situation at the end where God provides the plant and the scorching east wind to expose what 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 was going on in Jonah's heart. God was gracious in doing that and confronting Jonah in his anger so that he might see God rightly and see that he needs to love others rightly in response to, no, none are righteous. We all need God's grace. And God is a God that is for all nations, not just him. And then lastly, the Pharisees in Luke 6 through, uh, Luke 6, 6 through 11, they're angry with Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus says, it is, it is better to do good on the Sabbath. Uh, and he heals this man with a withered hand. The Pharisees are more concerned with works-based righteousness than living a life of repentance and faith before the Lord. They loved their, their works, 
more than seeing good done to this man on the Sabbath. They loved more than their rules and rules and rules than actually seeing this man and and dying to those man-made rules, which weren't even God's commands in the first place, to love this man and to, to rejoice that Jesus just miraculously healed him in that moment. And that result was, so ultimately it was a threat to their power and authority. They felt threatened <laughs> because they were not loving God. They thre- thre- threatened by God. And that anger led to the plot and ultimate execution of Jesus. Uh, it ultimately led to to murder. It was murder in their hearts, and then it gave birth to actual murder of, of Jesus. Yet, Jesus used that to save his enemies um, through his death on the cross. Just um, uh, one more. So, we, we talked about parents. Uh, so, examples in our daily lives, just that I think kind of ring true for us in the moment. Like parents and discipline of their kids, we talked about that. How <laughs> there's a way in which we can respond with righteous anger. That is a way of helping them see God's glory, His holiness, offering, holding out the gospel of grace in Christ, doing it in a way that is in the fruit of the Spirit, empowered by Him, or responding in anger and only just heaping strife upon strife. Um, uh, we talked about work when our work is threatened, <laughs> how we're tempted towards responding in, in bitterness and in gossip or slander or avoiding good work because um, we're angry at that situation. Um, I, I want to call it one more. Um, when we see injustice in the world, so we see abuse, we see um, our culture's rampant love of abortion and uh, rampant of abuse towards the vulnerable the wrong response the sinful response in that moment is to either a self-justify and say well i'm not like them (laughs) or it's to do nothing it's to actually see that that sin suffering and oppression and just turn away and pursue our own comfort to instead of sacrificing and in humility try to intervene in that situation and promote god's glory and the good and love of neighbor, we just avoid it. Rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit intervening for the, yeah, the promotion of God's glory and to prevent that abuse from happening in the first place. If we intervene in the power of the Holy Spirit to prevent abuse, to pass laws that stop abortion, or to intervene in a marriage where one spouse is abusing the other, and we have to remove the sinful person with strength to prevent that abuse that is good like that is a that is good that we are removing that person from enacting more harm Um, that is a righteous way to respond to abuse in that moment okay i wish we had more time to talk about all those so i apologize um I want to move to application because the questions listed, I think, are really helpful. And these are the questions um, from David Powelson's articles. But the first application for all of us is to repent and rejoice in the gospel. To ask the Lord to reveal the ways in which we are sinfully angry towards our spouse, towards our kids, towards our roommates, towards our coworkers, towards people in the church. Ask Him to expose what, (laughs) what we're loving uh, more than him, what we're loving more than uh, uh, our neighbor. And then look to the cross, look to the Lord. The, at the, one of the verses on the top of your sheet, Psalm 86, 15, meditate on how the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And how he chose to 
pour out his anger on Christ so that all who would trust him and turn to him might find forgiveness and new life and now have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us be conformed to to his image. So repent and rejoice in the gospel um, and move forward with hope that you're not going to defeat anger in your own strength, but God's spirit is powerful enough to defeat anger in his strength. And he's given you his word to expose what's really going on in your heart and to help you see Jesus more clearly and rejoice more deeply that he loves you and that he has loved you fully in Christ. Second application, um, I don't know I, I don't know how I put it on the sheet, but I put it right here, is discipline yourself to diagnose your anger and move forward in the power of the gospel. And I, I, these are the questions that David Paulson suggests to ask, which I thought were wonderful, so there's no point in changing them. But it, it takes discipline, especially when we have just, <laughs> when we have just uh, sinned in our anger to take a step back, invite brothers or sisters or a spouse into that moment and walk through these questions so that we might see our sin more clearly and see the gospel more clearly. And so it does take discipline to do this. It's easy for me when I sin to just quickly repent and just try to distract myself with other things and not actually do the heart work to understand what's going on and how the gospel needs to more deeply penetrate the depths of my soul um, in that moment. And so he gives two sets of questions. One is dissecting the anger reaction. And then what's the biblical resolution? So dissecting the anger reaction. So what's the situation? Just put it on the table. (laughs) What is the perceived wrong that that I'm seeing? how do I react in that moment? What is my response? Is it bitterness? Is it um, resentment? Um, is it y- yelling, <laughs> like in the situation of kids? Then asking the question, what are my motives? Why am I reacting in that way to that, to that, that perceived wrong? Um, is it pride? Is it my love of comfort over actually doing the hard work of taking the, the patient route and disciplining, disciplining my kids. Um, and then what are the consequences that result when I do sin in my anger? And just expose it for what it is. It never produces the righteousness that God, it never produces good when we, when we sin in our anger. And then do ask these questions, biblical res- so what is true? Who is God and what does he say? If a colleague wrongs you, what is true about God? He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's giving you all that you need in Christ. One day he's going to make all things new. He's going to right every wrong. It is his job to bring justice. It is not our job um, uh, to, uh, to do that in that way. Um, two, how can I turn to God for help? So what would it in that moment instead look, what would it look like to turn to God? So how can I turn to God in prayer in that moment? what scriptures might be helpful in thinking about that situation that if I've encountered it in the past, I'm probably going to encounter it again and probably sooner than I <laughs> like to expect. Um, in that, confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, trust the gospel, ask for God's wisdom to know how to respond rightly in that next time that you face it. That next question, how should I respond to this situation? What would it look like for God to be glorified in this situation? For his truth to be displayed 
for his character to be revealed as he produces in us the fruit of the spirit for the person that is the other party in that wronged situation how what do they need to know about god what what do they need to uh, experience of his character and then that last what are the consequences of faith and obedience trusting god and righteously responding in our anger only produces more good and only produces more blessing and it's we don't do it for that purpose, but God is gracious in that he does, he does give blessing and he does, give, uh, he does do much good when we, uh, in faith, respond righteously. And then lastly, um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I think this is just the most practical for all of us. With your roommates, with your family, with your colleagues, with your spouse, with your kids, with the church, I don't care. Whoever it is, if you are harboring bitterness... If you are resenting someone, if you are saying that person's a fool in your heart, today, reach out to that person, talk to them, repent of what you need to repent, confront if you need to confront, especially if you are perceiving something like, that person did this thing to me and I am, I'm thinking it means X, Y, Z, and as a result of that, I'm angry. So if my wife says something, I'm prone to misinterpreting that and then letting (laughs) anger take hold of me. Talk to that person and just, hey, this is how I interpreted that situation. Is that what you meant to say? And then have a conversation of repentance and forgiveness uh, in that moment. So do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think Ephesians 4, 29 through 32 is a wonderful just blueprint for what this looks like. Um, And I'll read it real quick. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, uh, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, as we try to not let the sun go down on our anger, and as we have conversations <laughs> with the people. Um, in those situations, our speech is to, there's supposed to be no corrupting talk, and it's supposed to give grace to those who hear. It's supposed to be tender-hearted. We're supposed to be kind, forgiving one another, ultimately recognizing that God has poured out his, his anger, his wrath on Christ, so that we wouldn't have to, to face that, and that we might be made new and alive in him. And his glory is on stake for any situation in which that wrong um, when, we, when, we're, uh, when we're in a situation of sin, suffering, and injustice. And so only by the power of the Spirit, by diving deep into his word, to have him help expose it, will we be able to respond righteously that promotes the glory of God and the love, the love of neighbor. We're already over time, but are there any burning questions? Not burning anger questions, but burning questions. <laughs> okay, I'm happy to talk after, but let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the grace that is in the Lord Jesus, that um, on the cross he took the punishment that we deserve so that yeah, uh, we might experience the joy of forgiveness, of uh, resurrection, of the promise of the new heavens and new earth where we get to dwell with you and worship you forever, where we won't 
be exposed to uh, anger uh, any longer. But Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would convict us of where we are wrongfully, sinfully angry. And God, would you help us love you above all else? And out of that, would you help us love our neighbor? Would you help us sacrifice and in humility pursue their good to help them see you in these situations that you put us in? It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.